Hey guys, welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. Today we are talking about Monty Python and the Holy Grail, a 1975 comedy classic. Uh, before we go into the episode, we do advise you watch the movie before you actually listen. We're going to be, I guess, I don't know if you can spoil this movie. It's hard to call it a plot that's spoilable, but all the same, you won't understand a lot of what we're going to be talking about. Uh, so Mike, what is Monty Python and the Holy Grail about? I have no idea, John. What a stupid question. Why would you even ask me that? I don't know. Okay, John, I don't know. I have no freaking clue. It's about nothing and it's about everything, but not really. It's really just an existential crisis wrapped in a fart joke, wrapped in a medieval satire, wrapped in a stunning critique of our Western culture, wrapped in another fart joke. So let me ask you a question, buddy, to answer your question. Do you love cinematic epics in the vein of Braveheart, Kingdom of Heaven, Troy, and the modern masterpiece, Alexander? Have you ever wondered what would happen if those movies were smushed together, directed by Kevin Smith and written by John Oliver and a team of monkeys with typewriters on meth with an affinity for nuanced political and social parody? And then those monkeys teamed up with Pixar, who just said to hell with it and gave up trying to make an impactful cartoon about deeper truths in life and just made something that makes no sense? Have you ever questioned the meaning of your life and decided that truth could only truly be found in a sing-along or by reimagining the dragons of fairy tales as bunnies whose only Achilles heel is a biblical hand grenade? If you answered yes to any or all of that, well then I still don't actually know if this movie is for you because I can't actually know anything because I live and exist in a dark, vast, meaningless universe void of actual meaning. So whatever... Why not make a retelling of King Arthur starring my Monty Python? Why not laugh at the abyss? That's what this movie's about, John. And it's a masterpiece, but it's not. And it's also stupid as hell. Okay? You got it? Does that answer your freaking question, John? Yeah. yeah. Jesus Christ, I need a cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. God in heaven, dude. <laughs> that was that was amazing. I'm, I'm game. I'm there for it. And you know, it was it was perfect for where we where we are. That's I, I couldn't think of a better intro into this talk about. Hey guys, again, welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life, a movie podcast where two friends take the films that they love way too seriously. I am joined by, you've already heard him, Mike Overstreet. Hi, Hello. Mike. Hello. And as Mike uh, so so beautifully summarized, we are in fact talking about a movie that is, I think, perhaps the most difficult movie we have tried to talk about yet. This is Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Like I said, it's a 1975 British comedy film written and performed by Monty Python, which is a legendary British sketch comedy group who before this had worked as mostly on just a successful uh, TV show, the legendary Monty Python's Flying Circus. Monty Python consisted of Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Eric Idle, Terry Jones, Terry Gilliam, and Michael Palin. Before we go any further, I have a quote from John Oliver talking about uh, the, the impact and influence of Monty Python. 
writing about the importance of Monty Python is basically pointless. Citing them as an influence is almost redundant. It's assumed. This strange group of wildly talented, appropriately disrespectful, hugely imaginative, and massively inspirational idiots changed what comedy could be for their generation and for those that followed. It's really weird, Mike. Uh, we always start this with what's your history with this movie? We've done some relatively well-known, important, influential, impactful movies. I feel a certain sense of not quite reverence, but yeah. this is like such an iconic movie that we're tackling. Yeah, and it, no, and absolutely. That weird like legacy and, and, and impact, it might be one of the most monumental things we've talked about. So it's just strange going into it. What What is your past with the movie, uh, your history with it, I should say? Well, I mean, real quick, I just want to talk about two yeah. other quotes that I pulled about it, because I think this goes into my past with the movie. Uh, one was actually from the same piece that you just cited from John Oliver, where I think he goes on later to say, it's probably more efficient to say that comedy writers should have to explicitly state that they don't owe a significant death to Monty Python. And if someone yeah. does that, they're emphatically wrong and i bring that up uh because this movie if you told me when i was watching it the season of my life when i watched it over and over again if you told me that it was impactful important world shattering i would not have any clue <laughs> that that was true <laughs> because i saw this movie as a very small child right i've never thought yeah. of this movie as influential I had never really sat with it in terms of its impact on cinema. I was yeah. probably 10, you know, when I first saw it. And I just thought it was a silly fart filled gag, right? Like one yeah. bit after another. Um, I was obsessed with it. This is probably the hardest movie that we've done for me to be unbiased about because it has the most <laughs> nostalgia associated with it, right? Um, yeah. I, I think of my dad, I think of watching with my dad, I think of sitting on the couch on a Sunday. Right. And I think of putting it in the VH or VCR cause I was ancient and yeah. just watching it over and over again, really. And on top of that, as I've actually like studied it, I think this is also the movie that I have had my thoughts change about the most since we're watching it Interesting. in fact since we're watching it for this very podcast because i had not seen this movie in probably 10 to 15 years and the silly stupid comedy that i remembered you know parts of that are still true but boy there is more to this movie than that that i realized recently yeah i think that's true it's funny a lot of your experience i relate to quite a quite a bit I think especially people of, or frankly, probably guys of our generation, I, I dislike gendering things, but just like culturally traditional, I think often dads will show this movie to their sons because I connect to that specific experience a lot. I think my dad had probably three or four movies that, you know, that he was probably waiting for me to watch, right? Waiting to show his kids. Yeah. And I think Star Wars was the obvious one. He's, you know, he was a big Star Wars kid, he, he was born in 63, so Star Wars came out at the perfect moment for him to just be completely sold out to it. Uh, I guess Lord of the Rings, even though they were coming out in my lifetime, but he was so connected to the books. And then probably Monty Python, I think, would yeah. literally be one of those top ones. Totally I just same. remember him saying, this is, this is so funny. Obviously, a lot of it went over my head. A lot of it doesn't, though. And I think 
that's a mark in its favor that it plays very well to a lot of age range. Uh, I, you know, in hindsight, rewatching it, I, I don't know if I remembered all the Castle Anthrax stuff, but it, it is a bit surprising. <laughs> I watched the movie that young. I yeah. think maybe in the way that you often talk about your dad showing you perhaps violent movies a bit early. I think my dad let a lot slide in uh, under the umbrella of comedy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That if it was a comedy, it was kind of like, well, we can get away with <laughs> it can't be one or two. Bad. What are two kind of kind of innuendos or things uh, c- c- can slip in there a little bit? We talked a little bit about the the legacy of this movie. I think I, I want to maybe say before we go into sort of talking more in depth about uh, the different things we talk about with these movies, I, I do think it will be difficult to talk about for a couple reasons. Obviously, we have a lot of notes prepared, so I'm not worried, but. Drawing up notes, trying to figure out how to discuss this movie, I, I I pulled up a couple different ideas of what makes this difficult to talk about. For the the first thing is arguably few movies ever in existence take themselves less seriously than this. Oh movie. my god, yeah. And our whole sort of bit in this show is to take these things too seriously. So depending on how you look at it, we either have a lot of rope to work with or none at all. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah, that actually, I, I, I guess it's freeing that. Go ahead. Well, yeah, that actually is the I, the, I mentioned a second quote and I just want to read yeah. this because this captures yeah, for ahead. me the the dualism, dualism of this movie, how it's ridiculous and it has nothing serious and then it's somehow totally serious. And it's a quote about yeah. the absurdism at the heart of Monty Python, the Holy Grail. It's from an article published by the new Beverly Cinema by Whitney Siebold. And I just think this is perfect. She said, um, there is no floor in the Holy Grail, no rules. To quote Sir Bedivere, the earth is banana shaped. We know the absurdity in the world. In some cases, that awareness takes the form of criticism of medieval times. Bring out your dead. A criticism of English divine rights and the nobility of Arthurian legend. You can't expect to wield supreme executive authority just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. A criticism of dumb male sexual fantasies after the spankings, the oral sex, or even a cute metatextual criticism of cinema itself. It's the old man from page 24. Even the film's opening credits have trouble getting started. The subtitles get distracted by stories of a moose. Nothing functions in Python's world and not because they broke it, but because we're all cogs in something that looks like a machine, but is in fact a pile of non moving parts banana shaped ones. I love I think that that's quote, perfect. but it yes. is why this movie is so challenging to overthink because on one it's hand, hard to think there's of nothing yeah. to think about. And on the other hand, there's so much depth to what they're doing because of the absurdism it, at the center of it. Absolutely. I think that you, that hits the nail on the head of, of kind of the perhaps difficulties we'll face. We'll have a lot to talk about, but yeah, it, it just sits in this strange space. The other two points I had, just very quickly, yeah. we've already kind of violated this. I had, this will be difficult to talk about because we will have to work very hard to avoid this devolving into a series of quotes. So that is, because this is possibly the most quotable movie of all time. Yeah. I, it could be part of that cultural, where it sits in culture, but I just felt like I'd know every single line of this movie and at some point have used them in my life to describe a situation. And then uh, finally, I would just note 
we're, we, I t- I've said a little bit about where this movie sits in cultural consciousness. I, I think it's in a very weird state at this exact moment, too, in 2021. The people that really like this movie over the past 40 years, I think sometimes have become very insufferable about it. And it also sort of risks falling into the Seinfeld isn't funny trope. Seinfeld isn't funny describes the this phenomenon where something is so groundbreaking that it changes the game completely and people who come in after the fact don't necessarily recognize the groundbreakingness of it they just know it as the stuff they've always known yeah and so it becomes not and so it struggles to maybe hit for a a modern audience i i do think that for younger people today going back to monty python i'm not sure if it always hits the way that it does. I, I honestly think the only reason it connects so much for me and probably people like you is because we were showed it so young. So it yeah. sort of still did introduce me to this style of comedy, even though I could have intro- been introduced via other th- other things that were created later, in mm-hmm. which case going back to this, I think, wouldn't have had the same impact. Well, yeah. So it's just in a weird state. I, I, sorry, it's, again, it just makes it hard to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's like, it's one of those things where even as I researched it for this podcast, I learned just how influential it is. Like in terms of talking about characters in a movie that are funny because they just say absurd things that have nothing really to do with what's going on. Like when you think of like the hangover, right. And how much of that comedy is Galifianakis or what I, my goodness, I butchered that word. That was pretty close. Anyway, (laughs) Zach Galifianakis, um, just like blurting out absurd quotes, right? And how there's a comedy to how that seems to break normal storytelling and what you expect characters to be. Like those are so assumed in comedy now. And when you read about what this movie did, it's like that it created a lot of that stuff, right? Yeah. Comedy isn't just a joke with a flow and a, an order and a one liner. It is sometimes just an absurd thing to throw out there where the humor comes from how almost subversive it is to your expectation. And yeah. you wouldn't think about that as being revolutionary. But it's like, I don't know. I can't imagine a world that doesn't have the comedy of this movie just underneath everything I see, which is what I'm trying to say is the world that we live in. So, yeah, I imagine it's very strange to come back to. It, Yeah, it's. I think. And you know what? We're kind of already there. So let's just go ahead with that segue. Our first section of this podcast, we talk about why this movie works. Mike and I have each prepared kind of just usually a list of different things, different discussion points. Uh, But I want to start with a big one. I want to have like a mini sort of section of the podcast within this section. So, you know, obviously, I think the main reason this movie works is this is such such a funny movie. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I read a thing doing some research for this that. Uh, depending on how you count them, there's an average of one joke per 10 seconds. Of <laughs> That's wild. Which, which is pretty, and if you think about it, it's kind of true. You can't, like you said, you can't even get through the opening credits without so much. And I, I, I don't know if I noticed until this most recent time, but there's also uh, people who are credited who are jokes, who it starts oh, yeah. getting into moose operator i I always watch the subtitles let's talk about that i never even noticed Let's talk about that in its own section because i want to spend some time on the opening credits um but yes well this movie's hilarious and with that in mind i asked mike to prepare a a list of just his favorite sort of bits from the movie i have a list of my favorite bits scenes or or just gags or whatever 
that I want to note. So that way we can kind of contain it because otherwise I, I fear that we're going to, yeah, like I said earlier, devolve into a lot of quotes. So we're going to, we're going to wrap all of the funny parts of the movie into this one section and we're going to go back and forth about what we found funny. If it's okay, I'm going to start with my favorite scene in the whole movie. Yeah. Uh, and what I think is the funniest 10 or 15 minutes of anything I've ever seen. And it's the tale of Sir Lancelot. <laughs> the tale of Sir Lancelot is uh, John Cleese is Sir Lancelot. We have a, there is, there are problems with this little section because there's a character, Prince Herbert, who reads kind of stereotypically gay. He's certainly effeminate and he has traits that the movie sort of passes as a joke in that context. So that's not great. We'll get to that a little bit later as well. But besides that, I think it's a flawless 15 minutes. The bit where I want to call out a couple things. The bit where Lancelot is running towards the castle always makes me laugh with it that music, repeating. that like hype up music. I always forget the timing of how long it takes. times we cut back to him running with that little yeah. you know and then he's and just then like right the on guards, them and he's cutting their and heads he's right on them that <laughs> entire so moment funny. where he's running through the castle stabbing so many people <laughs> none of whom are fighting back in any way with that that heroic music in the background so uh good. the the we're gonna get to john cleese in a second but the line reading when he gets up to the to the top tower oh fair one i'll hold your humble servant sir lancelot of camelot i've come to take you oh i'm terribly sorry you got my note uh well i i got uh, a note <laughs> when he looks up and sees who it is is the best line reading of the entire movie it's so good uh I, the just one more quote i'm gonna throw out there this is supposed to be a happy occasion let's not bicker and argue over who killed who <laughs> I love that line. And my favorite, and, sorry, sorry, one more, one more. My yeah. favorite line in the entire movie is when the dad says, you fell out of the tall tower, you creep. Yeah, creep, creep is such it's a good such a mean word. word there. It feels so All cruel. of that together, it is just as a short, as just a short piece, the movie could have been that scene and it would be one of the funniest movies ever. I needed I to call out my love of that scene. We're going to get to John Cleese later because I think he's a huge part of not just this scene, but why this movie works. But that's where I'm starting. That's what I think is the best, the funniest moment in the movie. Yeah. Mike, what do you got? Oh, man. Well, real quick. Also, when he starts, <laughs> when the dad leads him back into the wedding and the music starts yeah. again <laughs> and, and he starts music. killing people again. <laughs> And, it's, and the best part is that music is this heroic music, this, this sort of Robin Hood-ass thing, and he's just stabbing people. Oh, it's so good. It's so funny. All right. Well, I'm going to start with my favorite scene, or what I think is the funniest scene of any movie ever as well, at least for when I was a yeah. kid. And it's one of the ones, like, I think it's really important to say that so much of what I found funny about this movie as an adult watching it was different than what I thought was funny as a kid. Sure. But this scene was funny both times. And that's the bunny scene. I mean, yeah. it's yeah. one of the funniest things I have ever seen. I mean, from the moment that they come to Tim the Enchanter and he goes, There are some who call me Tim. 
Tim, and the oh. little pause again. That's John Cleese, by the yes, way. But that so little good. pause is what sells it. Yeah, and then uh, like all the way to the point where he's, you know, oh, he's got big gnashing teeth, and then when it jumps forward and kills the first knight, he's got huge sharp. He can leap about. Look at the bones. Go on, boys, chop his head off. Right, silly little beater. One rabbit suit coming right up. I fall out of my chair laughing every time because it's obviously so ridiculously violent and then it's so yeah. much better that they use the stupid stuffed prop puppet <laughs> for it instead of like I, trying to do CGI like it would be today it's just like this obviously the most freak. low budget yeah <laughs> It's incredible. It I will tell you too. Flying between them, killing everybody. <laughs> so I will good. tell you too. This scene uh, surprised me the most on the most recent rewatch. There's a lot of scenes that I remember liking as a kid that don't land as much for me now, often because they're too overplayed. Like we'll get to some of that later. Yeah. Uh, this scene I had sort of forgot about because I watched it so much as a kid. Yes, and I was like, yeah. whatever. It caught me completely off guard watching that thing, and it decapitates it the does. guy. It does. Watching it suddenly gets so insanely violent in the most unrealistic, cheap way possible oh, is yeah. incredible. And then it, it has another great quote, and that's the last I'll say about it, um, where John Cleese is like, should we try another frontal assault, my liege? Which is hilarious because they just all got murdered and it's they got like completely destroyed and then, and then someone else says we better not risk another frontal assault that rabbit's dynamite <laughs> like, i don't know why that line is so funny to me. it's so there's oh. so many well you, and, and you hinted at something that i think will be recurring uh throughout this section probably the whole podcast sometimes the humor is just like the way they say something i know right like it can be the smallest thing that just sort of like after the whole this is my this is my next one when they do they, they see camelot and we go into that whole musical number of all the knights inside yeah. of camelot <laughs> and, the guys and just the, the <laughs> one and the, but the part that kit the part that gets me is the deflation in arthur's tone when we cut back and he says no on second thought let's not go to camelot it's a silly place it's, so it's such the reading of that line has always stuck with me I, I think that's so funny. What else do you have? Oh, um, I think my next one is Sir Robin's Minstrels when they're singing about the horrible way he's going to die and how he's a coward. <laughs> and how he's so... <laughs> and especially when they're leaving after the fact and he's disagreeing with them yeah, the like, whole no, time. And... <laughs> yeah, but they're like, when they're like, his intro's pulled out, his eyes gouged out, his penis cut off, and you're like... He's, what? What? <laughs> It's so. I love funny. too when they when they encounter the three headed knight, which looks incredible. Yeah, and they start they start touting him up, and he silences them and says, "Oh, we're just just we're just passing through, really. We're just on a walk. <laughs> nothing to nothing to. What do you desire? To fight? No, no, not to fight, not to fight. Uh, you know, nothing, nothing really. <laughs> That's right. Sir Robin slays me every time. Yep, uh, he's great. This is a small bit, but I want to call it out. Arthur, the king of the Britons, as he says is supposedly on a sacred religious quest for the Holy Grail. The amount of times he exclaims, 
Jesus Christ yeah. is so funny. So Every funny. time, I think the first time is when they're outside, when they throw the cow at them outside. The yeah. And it, it never fails to make me laugh. Because again, otherwise he's so noble and he's, he's, you know, praying to God constantly, but the slightest thing happens and he'll just exclaim that so loudly. It's so funny. What else do you got? Oh, man, it's so hard to pick. Um, I think I have to give a shout out to the Black Knight scene because. Yeah, yeah. It's just like I still I always forget that the bridge he's protecting is like the smallest thing ever. And it's over like a little stream and is so easy to not go across. Yeah, I think is one of the best like (laughs) small jokes in that scene is that they could. Very, there's no water, I don't think. Yeah, they could so easily walk around. And it, it but they have to, yeah. Well, it's funny because it's like this scene is one of the ones that's been overquoted, right? And yeah, that, I was gonna, sorry to interrupt, I was gonna say that that's why I didn't include it. And yeah. I actually have it in my list of what holds the movie back that there's scenes like this one that are so overquoted and so that they just don't work for me anymore. Yeah, I still recognize it's a great scene, but I can't really watch this. But scene that's anymore. also I'm glad like if you still can't. That's what's so great about it. Even knowing that the small details of it make me just laugh so hard. Like I said, the little bridge when they hit him in each arm and it just falls off and blood sprays out is like, it's such bad effect on (laughs) like on purpose. So there's like little nuance to the violence of it. That is just absurd. (laughs) But one and getting back to as well, those little things that the characters say, I do love the way that it's Cleese once again, the way that Cleese says, right, I'll do you for that. Yep. Which is yep. such a casual comeback when he's missing an arm. It's so good. Or when he Again, says, it has been overdone, but. You've got yeah. no arms left. And he goes, yes, I have. <laughs> it's like, what? I, I love it. I know it's overdone, it, but I still love it. Um, My next one, it is, you know, I, I debated including it, but I do laugh at the scene significantly more now that I'm 29. Sir Galahad the Pure in the Castle Anthrax. Oh my gosh. Is is a great, a great 10 minutes. Uh especially the seed where Lancelot rescues rescues yep. him. Yeah. Uh, again, I keep going back to Cleys, but when he shouts, Silence, foul temptress. Yeah. You and then later on as as Sir Galahad's arguing with him, Cleese tells him, You were in great peril, you were in terrible peril. We have to find the Holy Grail. Come on. And Galahad <laughs> is so upset and is so yes. trying to get back. Uh, the line when the main uh, uh, head woman or whatever says, all between 16 and 19 and a half. <laughs> and, so and when he, she, he leaves and she goes, oh, shit. <laughs> and, <laughs> it's just so funny. <laughs> it's so good. It's so stupid. Uh, what else do you have? I don't have that much more. Um, I have... Man, this is one I was, I just don't know if I want to include, but I feel like I, I'm like, I have to, but the bring out your dead sure. is yeah, like the entire back and forth with the, I'm not dead. Yes, he is. Well, he will be soon. And he's like, I feel fine. I think I'll go for a walk. It's like so funny to me. Like that entire Look, back and forth. Isn't there something you can do? Yeah. <laughs> and he just, and he passes him a bit of buddy and he clobbers the guy. And then even like it's when, great. even when the, he's like, that's the king. And he goes, how do you know? He's like, well, he doesn't have crap all over him. And you're like, what a great little medieval times bit. It's just so funny. I don't know. You know, that does remind me. I left something out of the Sir Lancelot scene when the, uh, the, he's trying to say that he's now the father of the, of that bride. 
but they're like, oh, the, her father, he's not dead yet. He's actually getting better. <laughs> yeah. And then he sends the guard over there yeah, to stab him. him. <laughs> when her own him. father, who's looked for the moment so close to making it, suddenly was gripped by the horrors of death and then he gets stabbed. Uh, the last big one I have, I, I love the entire scene with the guy when Arthur is trying to figure out who's the king of the castle and he's being explained by the one guy, I told you, we're in a narco-syndicist yep. commune. Yep. We take it in turns to act as an executive officer of the week. I think that really like like nails exactly what we're talking about. This is a profoundly stupid movie, but it's also a profoundly smart movie. Yeah. That is such a a great way of talking about these these college educated people that get so into what political systems mean and into all of this academia bs essentially ab about these systems and, and the way that these things impact people i think it's incredible uh well, yeah it might be the one i think about the most but. yeah i mean that that scene is the one i had in mind when i was thinking like i did not think this scene was particularly funny as a kid and it's now i think for who I am today, the funniest, objectively funniest scene in the movie, right? Well, you were um, a poly sci major, so yeah. you literally. Oh, it's so funny. Yeah. As like, yeah, yeah. As, as in terms of like the actual political process that he's laying out and how he's talking about it. I mean, hold on. Let me yeah. just let me. Can I read from that exchange? Yeah. Because yeah, I wrote go, this down. Go to he says, how did you become king then? And then Arthur tells the Excalibur story and he says, listen, strange women lying in ponds, distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from the mandate of the masses, not some from, from farcical aquatic ceremony. And then obviously King Arthur starts yelling, be quiet. And he's like, I mean, you can't expect to wield supreme executive authority just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. If I went around <laughs> saying that I was an emperor because some moistened bent had lobbed a scimitar at me. They put me away. And then Arthur starts attacking him. Be he quiet. Says, I told yeah. you. Be quiet. And he says, ah, oh, now now we see the violence inherent in the, system. In the system. Come and see, Come the, and violence see the violence inherent, inherent in, the system. in the system. Help, help. I'm being repressed. <laughs> and the, and says, I want to say, too, getting back to what we're talking about with this, the excitement in his voice when after Arthur leaves, he says, did you see him oppressing me did yes. you see him oppressing me yeah. he was repressing me or when arthur says bloody peasant and he goes oh what a giveaway did you hear that that's what i'm talking about that's what or sorry that's what i'm on about did you see him repressing me it's so and he's and he's so excited oh, i it's love so that good it's so good i lied earlier i do have one more bit i want to call out the interjections of reality into the story yeah so like when the i think the one that always catches me off guard even though i know it's coming when the historian gets killed and it's that same thing as the bunny where it's so violent out of nowhere uh yeah, and then yeah. especially we just have to call out the entire end sequence i partially didn't know what to I, obviously the first time you watch the movie you're kind of like wait is this really happening but now it just always always makes me laugh uh, well, yeah. Do you have anything else? Well, I the the end sequence was the one I was going to talk about. Um, yeah, you know, I could talk about the French guys all day. Um, I think there is a number of things that beyond the quotes that we always think about 
that are just hilarious. Like when they're whispering to yeah. each other in the first scene, one is whispering in French and the other one can't understand him because he's not speaking English. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I and, then, and then there's the, you know, he says he's asked where the Holy Grail is. and He goes, we've already got one. That's just really funny. But in the yeah. final scene, I always forget that they, sh I forgot that they showed back up and I liked them so much yeah. more in that final scene. And from their encounter to like, when the army shows up out of nowhere and you're like, I guess this entire quest was pointless. Like, cause apparently the army just shows up. Yeah. yeah just completely out of yeah, nowhere. Yeah. All the way through the fact that they're like, there's going to be an epic battle. And then they get arrested. It's, it's just great. I mean, it's just a great sequence. Um, but I and don't getting know. to the subversiveness and stuff, there's no end credits to this movie. No. There's no, it literally, the cop puts his hand and obviously we had the opening credits, but the cop puts his hand on the screen. There's a little bit of like circus music and the movie's just over. That is so, again, the whole bit of this movie is that it's constantly surprising you. You never, never, never know what's about to happen. And I think that exemplifies that more than anything else. Yeah, actually. Uh, well, real quick, there yeah. is a um, quote I had about the ending that was interesting. It's from a 2017 interview at Indiana University. And it's actually John Cleese. And he actually apparently was disappointed by the film's ending. He says, the ending sure. annoys me the most. He said after a screening of the film at the school, adding that it ends the way it does because we couldn't think of any other way to end it. And then later, he ba basically, they say that they had originally tended to have an alternate ending where there was a battle between the knights, the French and the killer rabbit. But due to the fact that they didn't have enough budget, that idea was too pricey and they discarded it in favor of just this ridiculous King Arthur getting arrested sequence, which was deemed cheaper and funnier. So it yeah. is interesting. There's apparently there. It was not assured that this movie would end that way, but I actually like it better than the idea of like the uh, older bits showing back up. So I don't know. Yeah. Well, it actually, that's a really good segue. Did you have any other things for just funny no, stuff? You wanted that, to I'm ready to, okay. to get too serious. Yeah, so now all serious time, no more jokes. Uh, welcome to the serious podcast. Okay, uh, <laughs> that was a good segue, though. One of the reasons to, to this category is, you know, why does this movie work? What makes this movie work? Uh, one thing I wrote is that it weapon they weaponized their constraints when they made mm. the movie, namely the budget, right? The budget yeah. was so, so low for this. They had to get – actually, I, I learned a lot of music acts uh, put money into the movie because they were – huge fans of the comedy group so pink floyd and i i forget the other ones but pink floyd was the biggest george harrison i think uh ended up supplying a large part of the budget for the movie uh which was still so small but again they weaponized those constraints i think one of the best is examples of that are the uh coconuts instead of horses yeah uh it's a joke in the movie but it's a real problem they could not afford horses so they decided to have characters awesome. following all of our heroes with coconuts they i didn't know that together. that's really funny <laughs> yeah there's so much in this movie that was so apparently it was a really rough shoot because again they just had so little money most of the costumes besides arthur are entirely cloth so none of the other armor is real uh and they so yeah again it's just low budget they they come up with they animate things because they can't uh you know actually shoot it and then they work that into the joke about, for example, the monster of uh, or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then 
uh, kind of very related to that thing as well. Just the music in general is very hysterical. And to kind of relate it to that point about the low budget, they actually had a friend of theirs who was a composer who wrote a bunch of music for the film. Uh, but they realized that the cliche low quality stock music, so that's all stock music in the movie, was actually way funnier and would be cheaper than paying for an orchestration. <laughs> so so they just went with that. Uh, so stuff like that, I think, they, they weaponizing those constraints is, is part of what makes this movie work. Uh, what do you got? I think one of the things that we haven't talked about with the film before uh, that I think this movie really does perfectly is the opening credits. Mm. So let's just let's just sit with that sure. for a second, because I think the opening sure. credits plus that first scene, which brings in a couple of those things you talked about do more i mean they're funny right they are hilarious yeah. it starts with menacing mu music and then when you're reading the subtitles it's this weird swedish english running commentary about who knows what right at some point yeah. they're talking about i think like basically norwegian porn star movies i don't really know what he's trying to get somehow the writer is trying to get you to come to sweden but he's yeah. telling stories about it that keep devolving into stories that are nonsensical about moose keep coming up for some yeah. reason. It's also worth noting. I love that the script is like meant to be vaguely, uh, I guess, uh, uh, Scandinavian cause it has O's with the little cross through it and stuff, but it's still English and it's still, it is just vaguely changing letters. It's, I, I always love that. Part. Yeah, it's fantastic. And, and obviously it has the breaks where they keep sacking the people who are doing the subtitles um yeah like you were saying earlier if you read the credits there's like the person who trained the moose the person who does the moose special effects moose costumes one of them just says moose ta miss taylor's moose by and then has an actor's name and they're all ridiculous names obviously i think my favorite was moose trained to mix concrete and sign complicated insurance forms was one of them yeah. but i i bring all that up because then obviously once they sack the person for the last time it jumps into the crazy organ music which is and then flashing strobe lights and yeah. it's such a jarring shift and then it goes right into if you remember the smoky dark smoky death and you hear the hooves clapping until patsy comes up with the coconuts right and then yeah. they have the great conversation about where did you get the coconuts from they talk about swallows and and it's amazing but what Beyond the bits, I think what's great about it is that more than any movie I can think of, the form of its credits serves the function of the movie because it lets you know exactly what you're in for. And yeah. this most it, in a perfect way, it's funny. It points to the absurdist nature of the movie and it, in the sense that it's both, you know, having a, you know a gaff but it's also literally undermining the entire point of credits in a movie right credits yeah. are supposed to highlight important people they're supposed to let you know what stars are in it and that they do it in this way is is showing you this movie is not only going to subvert what you expect a movie to be it's actually just going to subvert filmmaking itself and it's going to do yeah. so through pointing out how absurd many of these tasks are many of these people's names are what is the point of all of this? And then it goes right into this ridiculously contradictory scene where there's a important king walking around with coconuts clapping. So all that to say, it's a perfect credit sequence. And we don't talk about credits very often because I think they're usually throwaways in movies. You just have to have them. Mm -hmm. And this movie takes that and actually plays with its its purpose, if it even has one. Yeah. Again, 
existential crisis. But it, it feeds into the absurdism of the film in a way that's deeply, like, almost subversive to cinema itself. So anyways, that's what I got. I really, really was, like, for some reason, overly focused on the credits this time. <laughs> well, I, I think the point that's that's most well taken for me is is just that, if nothing else, it's such a great introduction into this world, yeah. essentially. And it, it we I think we've even talked before. We haven't talked explicitly about credits, but we've talked about the ways that really effective movies are controlling their tone from the very get-go that they they are you know how you open and how you close right primacy recency effect is is very valuable and so i I think it is worth noting that this movie has you from the first moment yeah is, is already pushing you into this strange design that they have and that you're going to be stuck in for the next hour and a half um i i don't want to go too far without circling back we, we've, we've mentioned it a couple times but discussing what makes this movie work we have to obviously talk about the cast okay, and it's a unique yeah. situation where the cast are also the writers and the creators uh obviously with sketch comedy that's just a thing that's how that's part of how this works and so you know i, I mentioned all of the pythons they all do incredible stuff terry gilliam uh his art i will i, I just want to call out as well is is hysterical it kind of highlights the strangeness of this movie and and the weirdness of what you're watching. But the the person I most want to call out here is John Cleese. John Cleese is such a weird person. He's this tall, well-spoken, relatively handsome, educated British guy who who just appears like he should be he should be like a bank teller, right? Yeah, he should right? be like yeah. uh, or a bank owner or something. He just he has this this air of almost almost like nobility to him. But he's he chooses to play these funny, insanely weird characters, and he just so commits to it. Everyone yeah. else, I I don't want to say everyone else isn't isn't as good an actor as him because I think they all bring their own things to the table. But where everyone else, you you do get the sense that they are being playful about this, that they're sort of almost weak winking about this. He is so straight the entire time. Like, again, I mentioned earlier, Lancelot's my favorite character of the movie, partially because he is taking it all so seriously. And you you sense that he is really invested in this. And that's how the humor works with him. I just, I love John Cleese. He's so weird. And it's such a unique person to be in this kind of comedy. I think he's what makes a movie like this work. Graham Chapman, obviously, as Arthur, is also notable he as essentially the straight man sort of throughout most of the movie. Sure. Uh, but yeah, they all do great. I, I just wanted to call out, especially John Cleese. Uh, I don't know if you have anything on that, but well, yeah. And it, so I don't know if it's kind of one of those things that we often talk about with direction, where there's acting, there's writing, and then there's also like the direction key part of it. And I think with John yeah. Cleese, it's like, it's why I, I don't want to say I push back. But I would say the reason he's playing it so straight is how he is meant to be the ideal of like bravery and how he's obviously supposed to be undermining it through who he is in the movie. Like, it's again, it's that absurdism thing where it's like, look at these values we hold about bravery and and being a man's man. And look how absurd it is when you look at it in the vastness of this empty universe. Right. And how absurd it makes people. So I do think like his performance is perfect, but I'm not sure if he's doing something different to the other characters as much as that's the role he's been given and he's nailing it. Right. It's um, possible. And it's, I think it's, I think maybe I can make the argument that he's given that role because he sort of embodies that his, yeah, his characterization and physical traits embody that. 
But I think either way, it, it's working so well, right? But yeah. Uh, but your point's it, taken, yeah. yeah. Well, and I, I, think, I think what you can definitely say is one of the, the great aspects of this cast is that they're all so unbelievably willing or just like game for what this movie's about. Yeah. Like there's a clear unity in the vision that you need to make a movie like this work. Cause like you were even saying with King Arthur, he has to act in a way where he thinks he's in one type of movie and he's constantly confused as these characters from entirely different genres or universes come into contact yeah. with him. He has to play it almost absurdly straight for the film to work. And he's totally game to do that. Just like, you know, Lancelot is, has to be, unbelievably stoic and like serious and what are you doing in this ridiculous environment all of them have to be game to fill what role they have been written for and they all do it so well and you can only really do that when your cast is all on the same page and i think you really get yeah. a feel for that in the movie well and it's funny too because because what you're talking about maybe illustrates that that advantage of the fact that most movies, right, this cast is usually coming together for just this movie. Yeah. So it's not people that, that work together often. Of course, they're professionals, so they make that work. I think maybe one thing you see in this movie is the fact that this is a team that's been working together for years. Oh, yeah. You can feel it. That, that understands each other and understands their own comedic timing and, and all of this. It's helped, too, by the way, that they're all playing so many different roles. So, so you get to see them all having these different, work, you know, yeah just interacting with each other in all these different ways i think it all ties together and it's yeah. again part of what makes this movie successful when it, uh, it it also yeah, well uh it also really feeds into another thing of what makes the film successful if you don't mind me jumping onto it yeah 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 go ahead yeah and i think that it that feeds into the f fact that the form the actual like structure of this movie really goes a long way in helping it succeed so the actors know the yeah. vision of what role they're playing but then obviously the people who are editing and and writing it have a uh, an equally clear vision of what they need to do to make this film be what it's supposed to be and i mean when i when i say that i mean they expertly use like all these different techniques to subvert and blow up cinematic expectations which you have to do if you're going to make this movie be what it is which is like the most absurd thing you've ever seen. Like this movie doesn't work yeah. if they go halfway into absurdity. So you need things like when they break the fourth wall or the cartoons and the sing-alongs, you know, actors playing multiple characters, sometimes in the same scene without acknowledging it. Right. <laughs> All these random yeah. things. That's the writing part of it. And it also is feeding into this vision that I think is just really strong. I mean, the actual format of the movie is excellent and it, it helps it helps kind of ground it in this central premise that we're going to make the most absurd thing ever made and if everyone's not on the same page about that and doing their part it doesn't work so i don't know i just want what are your do you have any thoughts about the formatting of the movie yeah i mean i i think you're just i think you're on the money and and you what you're speaking to is it's totally correct the and it gets back to that style and tone thing right where yeah there's a it's strange to call this movie consistent but there's a consistency of, of, yeah, of tone. That's a perfect a word. I think that's a perfect yeah. word. There, there's a consistency with which it's applying its own lack of logic. I think that's the part that's weird to, to describe is that, you know, usually when we talk about consistency, we're saying that there's a commitment to a single idea and a single tone. In this movie, the single idea and the single tone is to keep changing 
what's happening to yeah. always be surprising and different and there's a commitment to that and so it what the the result is that it it just works throughout the whole movie so i think that's a totally a student yeah but it actually works great. also really well on a comedic level because the commitment to that shows up in the fact that yeah. this movie is incredibly serialized which actually really helps it as like in terms of the structure of its comedy because I mean, obviously, it literally has no plot at all. Yeah. But more than that, the fact that it's kind of these unrelated, barely connected scenes moving from one bit to another actually really does a great thing for the movie conceptually, which is that it lets you move quickly off of bits that maybe aren't landing with you, mm -hmm. right? Like, when yeah, they are absolutely. on a bit, the fact that none of these scenes last more than, like, two minutes actually really helps it as a comedy there's only a couple scenes in the movie that run five ten minutes um so i think that commitment actually shows up in this really i don't want to say technical way that's not the right word but in terms of structuring the comedy it helps the movie be as funny as possible because i never get hung up on a part where i'm like like i'm never like let me fast forward through this scene because i don't like yeah. i'm not terribly interested in the joke because i know that 10 seconds later there's going to be another joke that i do like so I don't know. I thought that was an interesting kind of technical aspect of it, too. I totally agree. What I wrote down for that is that I think that they they basically found a very clever way of bridging what they because remember, they cut their teeth in sketch comedy, yeah. which obviously is, is episodic and, and is, you know, you're jumping between different ideas and you always have that out of just ending the sketch and going to the next one. And I think that that episodic nature of this movie is a great bridge between those two different ideas, right? So it's still mm -hmm. a movie, and technically we're talking about uh, Arthur the whole time, and we're on the same topic, but they get to jump around, and they get to exercise their strengths as sketch writers, it, which is a medium where, again, you, you get to do different things. So I, I just think it's a very clever way of, of solving that problem. Yeah, uh, and it, I'll, it, I'll kind of... Yeah, well, it, it is really interesting as a bridge, too, because Life of Brian has a lot more central of a plot, right? So, yeah, we haven't talked about Life of, Life of Brian, and, and I don't know if we should, because, you know, we may get into No, we'll just that do later. that in its own time, yeah. But, but, but just real oh, quick, there is an yeah. interesting thing about that, which is that they all really, really love Life of Brian, and uh, I, I'm not sure all of them, I guess, but... Many of them cite that as the movie that they consider their best, sort of to the detriment of this movie. There's almost a sense that they not quite begrudge this movie's success, but they have a weird relationship with this. I think partially because it was so hard to film. Uh, but I just wanted to note that it's just an interesting thing where not as many people, uh, you know, I like Life of Brian. I think it's vastly less well known. Yeah. Than Holy well, Grail, I mean, not so. by the Catholic Church, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, <laughs> but. But no, I, I think that probably kind of points to what we were even talking about, which is, um, you know, it's a bridge. I think Life of Brian is probably the cinematic feat that they wanted to do. And this feels more like them learning to make a movie out of sketch comedy, right? Yeah. It's them learning how to become filmmakers. And Life of Brian, I think, is the film in, in, that they wanted to make, almost, you could say. Yeah. So I think I, I do think it's I could see why they would not find this one as interesting to them or maybe just begrudge success in favor of a more cinematic movie that they make later in their career. But yeah. Really quick too, going back to that, that 
episodic nature and how that works. I just want to note that I, I feel like I say this every week, but pacing, I think, is so important to a good movie. This is paced very well. It's also pretty short. It's an hour 40, yeah. which is great yep. because I, I don't think you can live in this world for too long before it starts getting draining. So it, it understands that. And it, again, also probably weaponizing low budgetness because I'm sure to go longer would also have cost more money. Uh, so I just wanted to know, I, I think that's part of what makes that really great. Um, I also will just, just I'm just going to fly through a couple real quick because I have some smaller things. I've always, I'm not sure if I've always realized this, but this movie, the way that it parodies Arthurian tropes is actually betrays a really good understanding of that genre. Oh, absolutely. Uh, And it it gets back to that weird line of this is very stupid. It's also kind of smart. And it, it, again, sort of like little details, like the way that Arthur carries himself and the way that he, you know, sort of has this aura to him that everyone's supposed to respect, but they keep skewering it with stupidity and with all of this crazy stuff happening around him. Like he said, it's almost like he knows or he believes he's in this, you know, Arthurian noble movie, but he keeps getting confronted with all this stuff that doesn't match up to that. Uh, it's just, it understands the genre and that's actually not always, that's not always taken for granted in these kinds of movies. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think that gets back to its intelligence I, I think I, I I wrote it down as subversiveness, um, yeah. where the film really is really, really, really good at, and this, I'll dive into this in my monologue, but at capturing the purpose of like absurdism, at least philosophically, which is to hold up an ideal that we use to create meaning. And then yeah. by kind of exposing it for what it is, the absurdity of the notion that it creates meaning or that it's valuable at all. Um, it subverts those things. Right. And this film yeah. does that with King Arthur, obviously, but it, it does that with a lot of things. I mean, it really does a good job of capturing in a comedic way, the real horror of like pre enlightenment life. I mean, yeah. the scenes about justice with the witch burning where it's like, you're laughing, but you're like, actually, this is why the kind of things that they burn people alive for, right? Yeah. It's exposing yeah. dogma. It's exposing pre-enlightenment religious belief. I mean, even mm-hmm. like the scientific notion that the earth is banana shaped and a sheep's bladder can prevent earthquakes, right? Um, yeah. And then, and and even then uh, going back to that Castle Anthrax scene, that that's skewering the entire, that's such a trope of, of the night comes upon the fair maiden who ends up helping him. And, and the fact that they take that and make it so over the top sexual, which we all know it always was, but you know, they couldn't call it out that way or they, they, they wouldn't for propriety's sake have, have worded it that way. Again, it just understands what those things were actually about and yeah. skewers them for it. Yeah. And, and absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I, it, and it, man, I don't know. There's just like a couple of examples that I was sitting with. I'm like, that's actually like really smart. You know, I think the economic stuff, for example, obviously we talked about the conversation with the peasant and how do you (laughs) know he's a king? He's got doesn't have crap on him. But but even like the the Lancelot scene where you have this lord building a castle in a swamp, even though it's dumb. Like that's St. Petersburg, right? That is literally the kind of stuff that happened in history that they're referencing and you're like, this is so dumb. Who would do this? You're like, oh, human beings have done it for all of history. We do that. And their attempts yeah. to create meaning and because they believe in hierarchies and they think that orders their universe, right? Um, yeah. 
And then the last one I'll throw out there is that it does the same thing with religion in a really smart way. Yeah. Like when God appears and he says, I hate groveling, begging forgiveness and people averting their eyes. It's like those miserable Psalms. They're so depressing. Like when God <laughs> shows up, he craps on your religion in like the most yeah. absurd way. Um, or one last quote, I swear I'm done with the holy hand grenade. Yeah. When they read from the scripture, the book of armaments, <laughs> Oh Lord, bless this thine hand grenade that it, thou mayest blow thy enemies to tiny bits and he pauses and goes in thy mercy like it is poking <laughs> fun at the absurdity of religious violence right yeah of cursing them really that's what i mean and and you yeah, don't yeah. think of this movie as subverting those kind of things but it does i mean that's what they're doing yeah. they're like hey look how absurd these things that humanity believes is and and does horrible things because of look look at them for what they actually are i think it's great it's really smart really subversive Okay, Mike, so for this next section, we actually have each collected some ideas of what maybe holds this movie back, uh, you know, from working even better. This will be a little tough because, like we said earlier, this movie doesn't take itself seriously. And it is hard to pin down. Usually when you think of what holds the movie back, you start with what is this movie trying to do? And then what holds it back are the things that prevent that. It. I don't know if there is anything that technically prevents this movie from doing what it's trying to do so this is kind of an exercise in banality (laughs) right Uh, well and it also has the pulp fiction problem where the things that we normally point to like bad effects and stupid cuts um were probably intended by the director yeah and you're like well i can't say it didn't work because it's you were trying to make it stupid looking or bad so i don't know it's back to that it gets back to that they weaponize so many of their own problems. It's like yeah. the, it's like Jaws, right? Where it's like he has the shark, oh. and it's not oh. working, so he oh. so he weaponizes it. Oh. You mentioned Jaws, take it off. I'll be honest. It's because I, I wrote it down, but I forgot to mention it when I first brought up the low budget. <laughs> Every thing. podcast. I didn't want an episode to go by without mentioning it. It is the greatest film ever made. Uh, the first thing I have for what holds this movie back is maybe one of the most snobby or pretentious things I've ever said. Uh, but frankly, I think you could make an argument that the fans of the film hold it back. Just the fact that there's a there's a selection of people that have continuously quoted and requoted these scenes ad nauseum for the last 40 years is maybe the the most. It's sort of it's such a great example of missing what makes this movie great. It's great because it's surprising, and so. There's, there's this element where it so has seeped into popular culture and consciousness, and we so know all of these quotes and all of these lines and all of these scenes that that hurts the movie, right? Yeah. It's no one's fault. I'm not mad at people for doing that. There's a reason why, you know, there's a reason why in my entire middle school, I think we quoted this movie probably more than any other, but... It is to the film's ultimate detriment over time, I think. Sure. The more canonized the movie becomes, I think the less it works because it's built on the premise of being not canon, of being too stupid for all of that. So I don't know. It's it's hard to pinpoint that, but I, I do think that kind of holds the movie back. I'm just going to go into my next one because it's well, very no, related hold, to that. Hold on. Hold on. Okay. Hold on. Just real quick. <laughs> I do think there is an existential problem where it's a movie that is not trying to be canonized and we're canonizing it. 
But I yeah. did want to say, I don't think, I think I agree with you because it's not a coincidence, at least I don't believe, that of all the movies from my childhood, this is the only one that it's been 10 to 15 years that I've come back and rewatched. And I think there's That's a reason a good point. for that. I think it's because it's yeah. been beat to death. Go on. Yeah. So, I mean, relatedly, part of why I think I struggle sometimes rewatching this movie, I-, I wrote down, there's a few scenes that are so iconic that I just don't laugh at them now. They're just boring <laughs> sure. to watch. Yeah. The Knights Who Say Knee. Yep. I, yep. it's, it was so funny when I was a kid that we, and we, we, we did that, right. We yep. did that to each other. So now I watch it. I'm just like, okay, I, I know this scene so much. I've heard the scene so much. Uh, the black Knight falls into that for me. The, uh, the coat, the swallows thing, all of these are funny bits, but they've become so ingrained in popular culture. I just don't laugh at those scenes anymore. I'm just like, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So it's it's difficult to call that a problem, but but it is. That's just you know it it holds the movie back at least for me. Uh, what do you? Yeah, have? yeah. I mean, I guess I'll just throw in a different another related one to that in the sense that I'm not sure it's actually a problem, but it didn't. It doesn't necessarily work for me. And that man, this is gonna get this is gonna be something that's gonna make people mad. The singing yeah, yeah. and dancing scenes don't do much for me. Um, <laughs> it feels like a really? different. Yeah, it feels like a different era of comedy. I will admit that I got I laughed out loud when it cuts to the prisoner clapping in the cell during the Camelot scene. <laughs> during the Camelot thing. But f- yeah. for the most part, I don't laugh. Like, it doesn't make me laugh. Um, and I, I don't know if that's has anything to do with the film or if it's just my taste at this point. But sure. they work on the absurd level of the movie. I think they're important structurally. I just don't know if the bits hit home for me anymore. And I would throw into that a lot of the jokes that are essentially just butts and farts. But yeah. I digress. <laughs> As always. Um, I will say, what holds this movie back? A couple of maybe tough moments. I don't know if... It, it gets a little complex because, like... So the portrayal of a woman is maybe an interesting conversation that I don't know if we have the money in the bank to actually uh, dissect. I, I think that mostly it is knowing satire... Again, yeah. that Castle Anthrax scene, I think, is satirizing the the male fantasy, but it is still talking about that male fantasy. So, so whether you think that's an issue or not depends on how much you think it's a knowing satire or not. Um, same thing with the the Prince Herbert character. I found myself uncomfortable. Again, he's not actually gay in the fiction; like, it doesn't say he is. Uh, but it's it's tough to watch that without feeling like that is sort of the joke, right? Yeah. That yeah. the 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 effeminate the, or, oops, how was that word? Effeminacy? the the effeminate traits. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That the effeminate traits of that character aren't supposed to in and of themselves be funny, possibly as just a contrast with the normal prince character. It's still I, I don't know if I'm gonna have a lot to say about it other than that I, I still felt a little weird. Right. Yeah. I, I still felt a little like uh, I'm kind of watching the movie from 1975 and maybe that's not so great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if there's anything else to say about that. It's just well, it, it is there. I mean, it, it's it's funny because on one hand, I was I actually kind of wrote down. I'm kind of impressed that for a comedy in this era, there isn't more that it can get canceled over. Yeah, um, I, I actually was a little shocked by that. Like like you said, even that scene that is the most 
the most sexist scene is is winkingly being like, isn't it absurd that men have this as a fantasy, right? Yeah. Um, and I then also I, I believe hold up that a is the value joke of, in that scene. Yeah, and then also hold up yeah. that they are virtuous and pure. Like yeah. men are yeah. and these women who throw themselves, but like even the most pure men secretly fantasize about this castle full of these sexualized women. And I do think that's the purpose. Um, I, I wrote that down and then I think there was a random joke. I don't even know where in the film where someone goes, I bet you're gay. That's a joke yeah, that is just I, I, like, I hey, homosexuality, yeah. ha ha ha, right? And that's that's not great, but it's actually so that it's, same. It's it's the Galahad in yep. Castle Anthrax scene when when Lancelot's leading him away, Galahad throws out there, "I bet you're gay" or something like that. Yeah, yeah so it's weird because on one hand you're like, wow, th- this is shocking that they made a film at this time that isn't more of these problematic things. Yeah, uh, but yeah, but there are there are definitely a couple moments, and I think I do think the Lancelot scene you're like the joke i do think the joke is like look at this man who acts like a girl right yeah um yeah and anyway i agree with you so uh my last one really before we get to stray thoughts I, and you you can have more of this time but my last one is just that possibly it loses some momentum at certain points i said earlier mm-hmm. it's a well-paced movie it's at good length uh right after the tale of sir lancelot so so kind of around tim the enchanter knights of knee that kind of vague area of the film gets a little slow yeah uh, and the rewatches that's often when i kind of start you know messing with my phone or something until we get to uh the bridge we didn't talk about the bridge is also very funny to me it is uh, yeah the swallows come back yeah the swallows come back i i really love we we said we weren't gonna do more quotes and stuff i just want to say when he's asking lancelot the questions and he says what is your favorite color and lancelot says blue and he says right off you go and yeah, lancelot says oh, great. thank you thank you very much and so they suddenly become so polite yeah it's just very funny to me it's great uh but yeah it's straight i think the film slows down at a couple points do you have anything else for what maybe holds it back yeah i got a couple more related to the one you just said i do think the movie's at its worst when scenes drag on like sure. we're talking about how it moves from bit to bit and that's what lets it never hang on a bit that's not landing and even though I love the scene, I think it has so many funny parts. Castle Anthrax is like eight minutes long or something, five minutes long. Yeah. And it's probably too long. Like, it's a bit that... I could agree with that. The movie is at its worst when it stops being that fast pace, bit, 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 right? Um, which isn't, again, I, sort I love of the agree. scene, but... Yeah, the only... I, basically, I completely agree, except that, once again, that Sir Lancelot scene, which, to be fair has a lot of variety within it oh but no, technically it. that yeah <laughs> technically that scene is like 10 minutes long i think that's probably the longest one yeah and um, and that points to the fact that so much of this is taste like sure, but sure. but i think as a rule the movie's at its best when it's quick 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 and those are the scenes where it's not so if you don't find the violence of the lancelot scene funny you probably feel the same way about that as i do the the sex jokes of castle anthrax so sure um, exactly so the other I, I ones are really just I have two questions for you, and I don't sure. really have a judgment statement on these. I'm just curious what your thoughts are. The first one is how much do you like the artwork scenes, like the actual cartoon scenes? Did those like land for you? I think that they serve a very valuable purpose. Mm-hmm. And some of them, I, I, I guess it just depends on the one we're talking about. I think some of them maybe fall a little flat. Uh, but again, they're all very quick. So it, yeah. it gets back to that thing where it never matters. I really like the one where he's writing, um, 
I think it's once again the, the Tale of Sir Lancelot. I don't know why I keep going back to that. But I think it's when he's writing the script for that. I like that one where he uh, th- there's all this noise outside. So this monk oh, yeah. has to walk down yeah. this tower. <laughs> he comes out and the sun and the clouds are jumping. This makes if you haven't seen this, this makes no sense. And even if you've seen it, it still doesn't make sense. And he he pesters them to go off, and he says something like "ready weather." Uh, so stuff like that, I think, is kind of funny. Otherwise, they are just kind of weird. But I think maybe that's the point. I I guess what I'm saying is they they further the tone of the movie, so therefore they work. Yeah. Even if in and of themselves, I don't think I think they're the least watchable parts of the movie. Right? They're the yep. parts I'm least interested in watching. Yep, uh, I think we're. But they further the tone, so we're agreement in there. I was like, because I put yeah. down like the monster scene where the black beast eats them and then the animator dies. Like that's funny, but a lot of them, I think, is what you just said. It's it's doing what it needs to do in the movie, but they didn't land, at least for me. Um, sure. And then the last question, it's another. This isn't about what didn't work. I just, I'm just curious about your thoughts. And that is like, as I was watching it, I really tried and I couldn't do it but I, I really tried to imagine what i would think about this movie if i saw it for the first time like as a 30 too. year old today and yeah. so like without the historical context about how deeply revolutionary it is without my personal love for it because like i think there's a part of this that like as a 10 year old with adhd the the randomness scattershot short bit absurdist format is perfectly designed for who i was as a kid then but like as objectively as you can be, do you think as an adult, if you watched it out of nowhere today, do you think this absurdist comedy kind of does do you think it would appeal to you today at this point in your life? I do, but in different ways. Yeah. So I because I, I, I think a lot of what we were citing earlier was funny, is mostly funny to me, or is largely funny to me because of my experience with the film from when I was very young. Uh I think I would still like it. I don't know if I would love it, and I don't know if I would connect too much of the movie the way i do now yeah frankly right there's just a lot of stuff that i think at my age now or you know i, I just don't think I'd, I'd connect to quite so quickly but i think i'd still like it and i'd still have fun i think that's where i land yeah i think sure. i think there are def i think it, i almost wonder if it would be more a movie where i had like four or five scenes that i thought were amazing and for the most part did not put it on the pedestal that i do but I can't, sure. I literally could not get into an objective place with this movie more than no. any other movie I've done. I was like, I don't even know how to criticize this movie because it's yeah. so deeply nostalgic for me. So I don't know. And actually, I'm going to uh, jump off of that real quick. So the next section of the podcast we call Stray Thoughts. We've each written a selection of just little points that we are interested in or have questions about or you know want to make. Uh, my first stray thought, though, is that this is a very hard movie to do stray thoughts for. Normally, this is reserved for uh, plot holes and inconsistencies to point out. <laughs> it's hard its to do when there's nature, no plot. By its very nature, this movie renders those ideas totally meaningless. I, there's no such thing as a plot hole in this movie because the whole movie is a plot hole. There's no plot. <laughs> that's so good. So that's my, stray, that's my first stray thought. I, I do actually have a few, but I don't have very many. It's hard to find things to just say about this movie, as, as weird sure. as that sounds. Uh, what do you have? Well, um, I actually wanted to know your thoughts on the fact that this movie 
just completely throws out your favorite rule from Pixar that we talked about in Pulp Fiction, <laughs> which is that coincidences can't get characters out of trouble. Like when the animator yes. has a heart attack and they get away from the monster. I mean, that's a coincidence getting him out of trouble. So it what is. are your thoughts? I, I, think that, I think they managed to get around it by nothing in this movie making any sense whatsoever. Were you offended I deeply, think... like spiritually? No, because I, I think by then I'd already, I would like to believe that the first time I watched this movie, I wasn't putting very much onto the plot by that point anyways. Sure. Okay. Right. That, that's only that. going to, that's only going to sting if you're like invested in the characters and where they're going. <laughs> I don't think I was. And, and you I didn't want to know? Almost, do, you know he this movie, do you know what this movie reminds me of? It reminds me of a far side cartoon, right? Sure. It's that, like, yeah. You, yeah. you don't grow attached to these characters or to this plot because they're going to get maimed pretty quick. And, and, there's no, there's literally no stakes of any kind. Um, no, you had some doughy eyes about Lancelot, so I think you're a little more a little, invested than you little, thought. But a little too real. Uh, I did have an extra thought. Young Terry Gilliam has such a weird face that may sound mean. <laughs> I just want to say, and frankly, he had, he is, and I see this with a few British people, even though I just remembered he's actually American. But whatever, he has that quality though where age really helped him right yeah like he looks now like he looks with the beard and everything and the white hair it's like oh yeah that's a that's a great guy and obviously he's had a very successful directing career and and has had quite a lot uh just looking back at him so he's patsy in the movie i'm sure he's other characters but patsy is the one where every time he comes on screen i'm like you just look so weird dude he's He's got a brow he's got such a he's got a really big brow yeah he's uh, yeah it's just it's just odd so i just want to that's that's the kind of stray thoughts i have with this movie this is the body shaming podcast by john yeah welcome Uh, to uh body shaving (laughs) where uh, we just shame people's bodies i said he grew into his face i said it got better (laughs) is that a compliment (laughs) yes it's better than saying it never improved. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Uh, this is one that I want 100% honesty from you, John. Are you ready? Go. Yeah. Did you know what anarcho-syndicalism was before seeing this movie? Or did you Google no, it? No, I, I, I still do not know. I never Googled okay. it. I actually assumed syndicalism wasn't a word. Is it a word? <laughs> yeah. Well, God, man, I wasn't a, I was an English major. I don't know. I didn't study political systems. What do you want from me? I'm just, I'm just checking. How you want me to read? You want me to you, read you the I, definition I, from Wicked? I was gonna ask. How briefly can you describe what anarcho-syndicalism is? First paragraph from Wikipedia. Anarcho-syndicalism is a political philosophy and anarchist school of thought that views revolutionary industrial unionism or syndicalism as a method for workers in capitalist society to gain control of an economy and thus control influence in broader society. The end goal of syndicalism is to abolish the wage system regarding it as wage slavery. Uh, Therefore, it generally focuses on the labor movement. That's crazy. There you go. Yeah, that hey, maybe maybe my boy was on to something. That doesn't sound so bad. <laughs> Welcome to the anarcho syndicalist podcast. What you got? Uh my next stray thought. Do French people find this offensive? <laughs> sure they do. I've never spoken with a French person about that. I have, but not about this movie. 
I'm just curious. I, I, I guess I could have looked this up, but I, I just wrote down the question. I was like, is this an offensive accent? Does that question. even does that even register in terms of like British and French hostilities? Like maybe that's just taken for granted and no one cares. I don't know. Should, I was just like, is this? Yeah. Should we have had a French person on the podcast to better represent? Like obviously, I mean, two two white American dudes. I mean, are we? Should we be talking about this? My mom's Honduran. That doesn't really help in this context, <laughs> but you know, let's, hey, text her. I let's took, find out. Yeah, I'll text her. I also I took a few years of French, so they, so did I. We're experts. Okay, we they're we fine. obviously know how French people respond to things. Yeah, they're cool. With uh, it. What do you got? Have you ever? I have never found someone who's done this, but have you ever looked up whether the science of the swallows and their flying and all that is is like real science? Because I'm super uh, curious. I, will, I did not purposefully look up, but if you go to the IMDb trivia, which I, I often read through before we record one of these episodes, Lame. it actually does tell you that a uh, swall- a little bit about swallows. I didn't write it down, so I don't have it. The one thing it did note is that swallows weigh even less than five ounces. They weigh, in fact less than one ounce a european swallow hmm. uh which i thought was crazy i i was like hollow bones. i kind of was having a animal planet moment there of like oh my god nature is incredible um yeah and yes they cannot carry a coconut i it has more information but i did not um, <laughs> okay I did not i'll look register. it up later i i will say real quick too what i appreciate about that scene something we didn't mention is that that is such a that's very familiar to me. I feel like you and I, so so Mike and I kind of started our friendship by going to get beers every week for probably like three years, right? Three or four yeah, years. that's about right. These are the kinds of conversations that would come up. <laughs> yeah. Conversations like this podcast, yeah. right? Yeah. Of like yeah. serious philosophical movie stuff. And then on the flip side, we could, I think we could kill an hour on, uh, do, <laughs> how could a coconut get up to England? I love when he just suggests. I love when the guy points out back to him, "Are you suggesting that coconuts migrate?" Like, because he says it so confidently. Of well, we see swallows, and so there you go. And it's like that makes no sense. It's just a familiar kind of argument. Absolutely, Uh, it was great. My next point: this is arguably the progenitor of I'm so random humor. I don't. I don't have nothing any much else to say about that. Uh, It's not. I think that often when people follow it up with just doing random stuff, they sort of miss a lot of why this movie works. It's not as scattershot as it appears. I do not believe. I think they're very intelligent about how they use that randomness, but it is, I think still inspired a lot of that kind of humor over the next 40 years. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what I was, or at least what I was trying to get out in the beginning of the podcast is I I do think things like the hangover like owe their comedy at least that particular character to this movie i mean i think that is that's where it starts yeah yeah Yeah. um (laughs) i got a kick that the scene with the king and the effeminate son who wants to sing is quite literally the plot of braveheart (laughs) like later i never thought of that it's kind of wild (laughs) it's like did braveheart rip this movie off i don't know i'm just i'm just asking questions john well, we'll have to ask Mel Gibson about that one. Uh, Mel Gibson on the pod next next uh, episode. Listen out for that. Um, this is my last story thought. So the woman who was with the murder historian at the end, 
points the police towards Arthur and says, it's them, I know for sure. Are we meant to believe that she is knowingly or accidentally falsely accusing Arthur? Or are she and the police just indiscriminately rounding up people with swords? I kind of think it's the second one, but I've always kind of wondered that. Obviously, this is not a movie where I think that point really means very much. I don't think that's a very (laughs) important question. But I've always kind of wondered, like, did she think that those were the people or are they just like, are, are they just getting anyone with swords and they're just like, okay, well, this has to be these people. Who else is running around uh, with swords and stuff? So that's that never question. made sense to me. Uh, but Deeper that's themes about police malpractice and brutality? Yeah, I, I kind I of know. started, I, wrote, I started writing my essay about police brutality and then decided to save that one for do the right thing. So, oh, well, I guess they're, they both tackle it. So that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, this movie and Do the Right Thing are clearly the the biggest Them- conversations to be had about police brutality. Thematically twins. Yeah, yeah, it's obvious. This is kind of offensive to me, this whole conversation. Um, anyway, uh, I got three quick ones. So uh, what happened to the shrubbery? Like the police are there later and it's all destroyed. And I guess is the implication that they destroyed it in their really insanity because they were saying who yeah. or whatever. But- it. I just, I just want it. I want a subplot it, yeah. about the shrubbery because, you know, I'm too invested. I just want to know. Yeah, so. it's it's honestly one of the most important characters in the movie. That's not yeah. a joke. That's it's like we spent a lot of time it. with the backstory of that freaking shrubbery. I just want I just want more information on what happened to it. Exactly. Um, I'm with you. This is a question for you. Is there any character in a movie that more deeply represents you and your personality than the peasant? that won't stop arguing about various forms of government with the king, despite the fact that it's not doing anything productive. I have no comment. (laughs) Do you feel attacked? I feel a little attacked. I don't think it's funny though. I think you're the more political arguer. I will argue. I will be that guy, but about significantly stupider things, right? Yeah. Like if that if their conversation was about Avatar being a good movie or not, I could be that guy. I could do. I could see myself as that. As you know, sitting there in the mud, anyone who walks by, talking talking bad about Avatar, me just saying, you don't understand the vision. <laughs> I could see that. Yeah. So maybe the four hundred million people can't be wrong, Mike. Best movie of the last twelve years. And this is a perfect example of maybe why it's the topic is closer to me, but to see the difference is I would recognize it's not going anywhere and just give up the conversation. And yeah, like I'm I doing right now about Avatar with you. But It's just because you, you, well, I won't push that. Anyways. Yeah. Okay, John. Okay. And then the last one is actually kind of, I should add this. It's uh, really a rewording of what I said and maybe what doesn't work or what holds it back. And that is, I don't actually know if there's nothing cancelable in this movie because I don't understand British slang. And they might have said a lot of really offensive stuff and I just don't know what those words mean. So, so just can wanted I actually, to like add that in there. But Sure. I, I want to pull up a story real quick. So when I was a kid watching this movie, also same thing, I didn't know very much British slang. The last joke line of the Camelot song is one of the knights saying I have to push the prem a lot I did not know what a prem was 
I'm not exactly sure what I thought, but somehow I thought that there was something like vulgar in that sentence. And I was like, I kind of always thought that that was like a kind of weird joke or something salacious. So then once I'm older, I actually finally looked it up and was like, oh, it's a, it's a, it's a baby stroller. So it's just it, oh. the, the last, that last joke is that. just, okay. So that's what the joke is. It's just that at the end, he just has this completely banal thing that he says of, huh. uh, I have to, isn't that it, weirdly a letdown? Cause again, I thought it was something like kind of, I don't even know what I was thinking. I just thought it was like some weird joke, but no, it's just sort of like how boring this night is, I guess is, is the bit. So, uh, so yeah, you're right. There's, there's maybe horrible things in this movie, but we're not British. So we don't know. <laughs> there you go. guys welcome back in this next section of the podcast uh we call it essays or talking points basically mike and i have each prepared a, a short monologue kind of diving deeper into some aspect of the film in this case that might be a little bit odd but i think we both did find some direction to latch on to uh mike do you want to go ahead and and go first i guess it doesn't really matter nothing matters everything is empty <laughs> okay then <laughs> Life is absurd, so you might as well laugh. That's the philosophy of Monty Python the Holy Grail, which would have sounded absurd to me even two weeks ago, because for years I never thought of the word philosophy when I thought of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I would never have assumed it even had a philosophy. It was just enshrined in a perfect case of nostalgia as the silly, funny, fart-joke-filled comedic romp of my childhood. Honestly, it was only when I rewatched it last week and um, dove into studying it, and mind you, it was the first time I had rewatched it in over a decade. It was only then that I realized it has a philosophy at all, that it may be the purest and most enjoyable example of absurdism I've ever seen. Now, briefly, for those who don't know, absurdism is the existentialist philosophy made popular by Albert Camus that focuses on what he calls the absurd. The conflict between our human tendency to seek meaning and to want to have meaning for our lives and our inability to actually find meaning in this vast, dark, meaningless, chaotic, and irrational universe. He argued that as human beings, we will come into what he called the experience of the absurd, which arises when we have to come face to face with these contradictory truths about our existence that we hold simultaneously. An experience where he believed we become aware of the absurdity of our lives and existence and the absurdity of trying to find meaning in that. And he also believed that when we came into an experience of the absurd, we would be forced to embrace one of three responses, suicide, a leap of faith, or recognition. Now, suicide for him was simply a confession that in the face of the absurdity of our universe and our existence, Life was not worth living. Dark, but not what he by any means argued people should do. Then, a leap of faith. This, he believed, was rejecting the absurd, trying to ignore it, and instead choosing to adopt or double down on some other absurd story or ideology that insists on it all having meaning regardless of what we've realized through our contact with the absurd. Or, finally, recognition. Embracing our absurd condition 
recognizing the absurdity of it all, which he argued freed us from absolutes that don't actually exist and let us choose to live and find meaning within our own subjective experiences. Camus argued it was only through this final path of recognition, of accepting the absurdity of our condition, allowing it to break our structures of meaning and order, and continuing to search for meaning anyway within ourselves. He believed that that was the only way forward through which we can adopt a wholehearted experience of our lives where every moment has meaning, not because of structure or order or purpose, but because we can live fully within them each moment at a time. Now that's a lot, I know, but believe me, it is important because that philosophy is at the heart of Monty Python, the Holy Grail. And it's what makes it so unique, funny, and for me, far deeper than I first believed. You see, the movie, as we've talked about, it embraces this thoroughly, more than almost any movie does. Its very structure is absurdist, as we mentioned. The movie is comprised of absurd bits, scenes, cartoons, and intrusions that catch the viewer and honestly the characters totally off guard, throwing off, exposing, and attacking the absurdity of our modern assumption of proper storytelling. That there needs to be a plot, that there needs to be a genre, that there needs to be consistency. It just blows those up and shows how absurd the belief that we find meaning in those things existing in a film is. And it has a blast doing so. But it also relies on this absurdist philosophy to levy critique of the assumed aspects and ideologies of our Western world, past and present. It turns them upside down, not necessarily by actively criticizing them but rather by using this absurdist philosophy to confront them, to expose the ridiculousness of their attempts at order for our universe simply by saying them out loud and taking them to their logical, silly conclusions. And in those moments, this movie has real bite. It obliterates societal assumptions from, it, from the medieval ages with humorous glee, some of which we still hold today. Plagues rage while idiot knights, who our society says are leaders and should direct the movement of our lives, gallivant around, being killed by bunnies. One lord, like Peter the Great's effort to construct St. Petersburg, builds his castle on a swamp at the expense of countless lives just because, and no one bats an eye at why he's making decisions, especially as his wedding for his son unravels into violence. The Christian priest has a holy hand grenade which he uses while saying, O Lord, bless this thine hand grenade, that with it thou mayest blow thy enemies to tiny bits in thy mercy. I mean, it's absurd. And the characters, they play into this too. They set up ideals and the pursuits of meaning beneath them that we try to, that we try to create in our world and our attempts to structure it, that they then just thoroughly undermine. King Arthur captures the absurdity of our attempts at creating order via hierarchies and power structures, the empowerment of great men. Dignified royalty is undermined as he, the hero of legend, gallops on an imaginary horse with his servant Patsy clacking coconuts. And as his attempt to inspire conquest is drowned out by a debate over sparrows. Divine rule and order is exposed as ridiculous when a peasant responds to the myth of Excalibur by telling Arthur quite matter-of-factly, Strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme Executive Porter derives from the mandate of the masses, not from farcical aquatic ceremony. A rant 
that we actually get to watch lead Arthur into a confrontation with the absurd as he futilely tries to tell him to shut up, as his sense of himself falls apart, as his narrative authority is exposed as a farce. Sir Bedivere, the wise, uses logic to conclude that a woman is proven to be a witch if she weighs as much as a duck. Sir Lancelot the Brave believes he's brave but doesn't even know what that means because it's a made-up word and he creates mayhem and idiocy in the process. Sir Galahad the Pure has his views of purity confronted when he enters the actualization of the absurd male fantasies of fulfillment that still exist today. A confrontation he tries to reject only to then ultimately get rescued from as it becomes what he actually wants at the exact moment he realizes he actually wants it. Sir Robin, the not quite so brave as Sir Lancelot, is a coward who wants to believe he's brave, even as he's followed by troubadours who remind him that he's not. It's all absurd. And in its absurdity, it lays waste to ideologies of purpose, order, and virtue that we rely on to order our world and to give it meaning. These attempts at meaning, divine purpose, valor, purity, heroism, get exposed by the absurd nature of the nonsensical world of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which produces a ton of laughs. But for me, it also produces reflection. Because though I don't personally feel drawn to absurdism as a life philosophy, I did find that it in this movie provoked me, which is the point. I was at times frustrated by the absurd randomness of it. As a self-proclaimed cinephile, I found myself, without even thinking about it, judging it, trying to force it into boxes like good storytelling and good cinema, and feeling annoyed by its refusal to follow those assumed rules, those agreed-upon structures. Eh, that joke falls flat because it didn't do X. Does this scene really need a dance number or a cartoon? I'm not sure that really fits here. I mean, these thoughts just kept popping into my head. And I realized in those moments... That being a cinephile, this identity I've given myself for the purpose of having meaning in my life, of knowing who I am, was actually preventing me from just experiencing the movie. That my narrative for who I was and how I structure my identity had become a barrier between me and accepting this movie as it is, from letting it just make me laugh. And in that, I was experiencing my own small confrontation with the absurd, and it highlighted how my own immense capacity to try to order and create meaning through labels and structures so often gets in the way of actually accepting, experiencing, and appreciating my life as it is. It reminded me that at times in my relationships, I attempt to create order by labeling people as friend, enemy, coworker, acquaintance, whatever, and that sometimes keeps me from experiencing them as a singular individual person in that moment where I'm with them. I remember that at times, in my work, I attempt to give some task I'm doing cosmic meaning, creating unnecessary pressure and anxieties and preventing me from just being present in the task, because it's all I can do right there, from enjoying it, experiencing, learning from it. I was reminded that at times, in my social encounters, I attempt to be X kind of person, brave, smart, likable, funny, and I end up being the exact opposite or at the very least, the exact opposite of who I think I am, or who I want to be. I end up being someone I'm not. Or worse, 
It reminded me that at times, in my attempt to be in control of my schedule, and my plans for my life, and what it's supposed to mean, I find myself getting frustrated and detached from the absurd moments that actually, if I would let them, would actually give my life meaning. Things I could see as my very reason for existing in a moment become interruptions in my internal monologue because they don't fit into my boxes for who I am or what I should be doing. And that sounds abstract, but y'all, it's so grounded. I think immediately to my relationship with my one-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Audie, to these moments when I'm working and convinced that it's this activity of work that has all the meaning in the universe, all the meaning for my life, and Audie comes up wanting to show me a piece of my dog's hair she's found, or she wants me to go to the living room with her so she can show me said dog, who, believe me, I've seen before, or she wants to show me that she knows where her belly is, or something else she's learned about. Or she wants me to chase her around like a monster as she giggles. Any number of small moments that come out of nowhere make no sense to those structures of meaning I am residing in interrupt my self-important sense of my life and activity. And instead of being confronted by the absurd in those moments, accepting and experiencing those moments, I so often just reject them. I get annoyed at them see them as interruptions. Instead of saying yes and accepting the intrusion by getting down to run, stop, play, yell, and laugh like an idiot with her, I reject the invitation to laugh and actually my ex experience my life in all its fun absurdity. And that's a shame. And in that, Monty Python reminds me that I don't have to. I can in those moments accept the philosophy of the Holy Grail and allow myself to see the absurdity of my myth-making and ideologies, and I can let that confrontation with the absurd motivate me to respond with recognition, not by saying there is no meaning or jumping out a window, but by letting myself enter into that absurdity, jumping out of my chair and finding the truest and best and really only meaning I could possibly create in that moment, running, giggling, and playing with my daughter, being her father, and wanting for no other story for what my life should be in that moment than having that experience. Realizing that in so many ways, life is absurd. And the best thing we can do about that is let ourselves laugh. I am reminded once again, uh, it's so great that the entire conceit of this podcast is that we take movies too seriously. It helps for moments like this, where there's perhaps an argument to be made that by, by definition, we are taking this too seriously, but, but I agree with all your points. I have, I have thoughts, but I, I'll wait to see if you have uh, questions. Well, no, let's start with your thoughts. And I have one question we can do after. Sure. I mean, yeah, I'm I, the short thing is I'm there for all of that. I, the thing I, am connected to it and was fascinated with uh you, you touched on the on the way that absurdism is playing fundamentally with with meaning right yeah and with this conversation about how we are responding to the meaning that we read into things not being there it's a fascinating it has a sort of fascinating history within art um some people even 
go back all the way to Don Quixote as one of the first truly absurd works. Yeah. I just think there's something interesting there because that also is dealing with a very stupid knight, sub- knight quote unquote, who is struggling with the sort of delusion he's created about the world around him and whether or not he he can match up to it. And yeah. part of how it works as an absurdist piece is that it doesn't give you the narrative satisfaction of everything being right. Spoilers, things are kind of a bummer at the end of Don Quixote. <laughs> and I think about this movie in that context, and I, I think it it's another way this movie nails what we're talking about, right? That it askews, you were talking about some of the ways that it askews Arthurian uh, tropes and characters and ideas. I think on another level too, all of that applies to hero narrative and film narrative. Yeah. You know, so, something as simple as, at the end, I expect there to be a satisfying conclusion. And sometimes that can be as simple as a huge fight scene and the movie gears up for that and then cuts it off at the head. And we said earlier that was part, at least largely due to budget constraints, but it furthers this aim of what we're talking about. It, it continually undermines the very idea of, of a narrative that we have all come to expect out of a movie, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just think that's a really fascinating part of this. And, and again, it goes back to that thing of, well, what is a movie even trying to do? We expect that the meaning of a movie gives me some sort excuse me, gives me some sort of narrative edification. And this so flaunts that it is such in denial of that in, at all. Right. It doesn't even begin to play by those rules. Uh, so I just think that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, there's something that's just really interesting about Albert Camus as a person, the, at least while I was researching this movie, is how almost vehement, like vehemently he was against nihilism. And I think that's yeah. really interesting because this there's something really beautiful about being like, well, no, the, the this pursuit of meaning is good. In fact, you're going to do it anyway. You're a human being. It's part of your humanity. It's built into us, right? And it's not, it's not rejecting the pursuit of meaning. It's rejecting the idea that we, that it has to be this way, or it has to be blank, or I have to do this or that. And it's going to give me meaning because it's going to order my universe, or it's going to make this film worth watching, or it's going to make this good art, right? And instead being like, no, 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 no. The meaning is how you respond to it, how you, it's reader response in some ways, but it's like, how, how do you subjectively experience it? And do you live within that experience and actually actually allow it to impact you right and i just think there's yeah. something beautiful about that where it's just like it, the goal isn't to be like there is no meaning the goal is to be like hey the only meaning you're gonna find is how you experience your life right and yeah. whether you find it to be virtuous like i mean he was a moralist which is really interesting when you think about that right um as someone who believes in like having societal values and virtues and like he he believed that those were good, but as individuals, we should not necessarily take them for granted or as concrete or as absolute, and that we should really reflect on how we respond to them and how we experience them, how they impact us. And I think that's fascinating Man. in the context of this movie, right? I just think it's really yeah. interesting. Oh, by the way, he was also super into anarcho-syndicalism. So I think that's a direct <laughs> reference to him in this movie. Yeah, it's I, just it really interesting. Uh, it's funny. We could really really go off the deep end here uh because i could honestly do two hours about what you just talked 
We probably shouldn't uh, because I don't think that would necessarily make for riveting listening. This is the uh, anarcho syndicalist podcast. Welcome to the anarcho syndicalist modern philosophy podcast. Uh, joined by, as always, by Mike Overstreet. I think the thing you the thing you said that I, I most want to speak to that I can hit upon very quickly. I believe, you know, there's there's this tension that I've always had with um, religion, and. And I say religion as opposed to spirituality, because I think this question, spirituality often gets right and religion often gets wrong to, to explain what I mean by that separation. Cause I'm sure there's people who are like, what, that's the same thing in this context. I take spirituality to mean the more philosophical side of what we associate with religion and spirituality often has significant crossover between different faiths. Mm. I would argue there's, there's, um, again, yeah, very, very significant crossover between Buddhism and, and Christianity and, and many different faiths. Uh, religion, I, I count as sort of the institutionalization of spirituality. So it's taking that and trying to create it into something that can be marketed and sold and, and pushed to different people and spread as much as possible. Um, which I have, I have significant more issues with. The reason I bring that up is because in my experience, religious institution dislikes this idea tremendously and fights very hard against it. Basically, this idea of, or, or in other words, they take it for granted. Well, meaning has to be given to be meaningful. So if I create a meaning out of something, then they would say that that's not there's not any value in that, right? And they actually use, you brought up moralism, they use morals as an example. So you'll often hear people say something to the effect of without, you know, I was given this argument when I was in a Christian school. Well, without the basis of Christianity, we would have no societal morals or societal values. I came over time to believe very strongly, not quite the opposite of that, but a very, I, I take a very different perspective than that. And I think it's influenced by these things we're talking about. I, at some point, started to, to in my reading and in my own sort of thinking, I, I just find that meaning that is assigned is not necessarily valueless. And in a weird way, I also think, like in the conversation of morals specifically, I, I find that people who accept that morals maybe are a bit shakier than something that was handed down to me on stone tablets... I actually find that that perspective makes you value morals more mm. because if it's something that we're all sort of having to buy into together, it really, so sorry to, to break off, but I think it is exactly as fragile as it's just something we're all buying into. It's a narrative we've all accepted about the world around us. On the one hand, that makes it very fragile. On the other hand, that gives me more responsibility to actually buy into these ideas. It it really does make the moral hold of our society weaker if I disregard these. And I think that the problem is coming from that institutionalized standpoint where these things are an absolute truth that has existed forever that was given to us. That puts you into a place of exploiting those and of not valuing them correctly because you think that those exist in the nature of the world itself. Mm. And obviously I can't impact that. So I don't have any stake in the game. I can kind of do what I want and it's okay because those morals will always be there. 
So in a way, I think there's a value. It actually doesn't surprise me at all to know. I, I also just knew that. But still, it, it's not surprising to me that Albert Camus, Camus, I think it might be Camus, whatever. It's Camus. Is a, yeah. okay, yeah. is a moralist. And yeah. that train, that logic train actually makes so much sense to me. And I, but I understand why, like, I was where I grew up, I think it would be assumed of, it was always painted for me the picture of, oh, well, if you don't have this uh, dogma, this this institutional beliefs that are handed down to you, where will you be? You'll just be trying to create meaning out of nothing. And I just take serious issue with that, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So I said we could do two hours. I did just do four and a half minutes straight. So so I will let that rest unless you have other thoughts on it. Well, no, I mean, I, don't, I think everything that you stated, you know, I think that's well said, so I won't speak to that. But I do think it is fascinating, like, just what immediately came to my mind, at least in a spiritual tradition, is the wrestling of doubt and how that's often turned into, and we've talked about deconstruction, but how that's often turned into, like, the worst of sense is doubting uh, these ideals or these virtues or the value of them that they've been given uh in any way it's like don't do that don't wrestle with them and i think i think that comes from this i mean it comes from a lot of things but what i think it can really stem from is the way that we've turned a lot of things like virtues and and morals into very platonic ideals right that they are these untouchable heavenly standards right um that are objective and set in stone and that we approach but can't embody in any number of things, right? And I think what what I've noticed a lot is that that leads to a moral faith that exists in the clouds but not in the reality of people's lives, right? And I think that comes yeah. back to what you're saying. It, it produces no buy-in. Like, buy-in comes not through me being told that I should be a good father in these exact ways, but buy-in comes when I wrestle with what that means. And then I find through mm. failure and success, the father I want to be the one that helps my daughter experience life and her relationship with her dad as abundantly as possible. Right. Yeah. Um, through my experience and in, in my wrestling with doubt and, my, and thus my embodying and actually my, like you were saying, my willful acceptance of them as good and as things that I want to strive for. And as things that aren't just not of this world, but as things that I can latch onto and work to achieve in my own life and find personal meaning in and from, right? And I, I just think that's one of the things that religion gets so wrong. It's like, it's it's not grounded. There is no humanity yeah. to it. There is no lived experience of it. There is no allowing people to make their faith, their spirituality, their religion, their own. And when you don't do that, it remains a set of ideas that don't impact how you live at all. And that's just, that's just a shame, you know? Originality, or the lack of it, is possibly the most cited positive or negative thing in any kind of art criticism. It's the easiest shot to take against a lackluster piece, saying that it's derivative or contrived, a ripoff or plagiarized, in short, saying that it's not original. But the thing is, I believe a lot of people totally misunderstand the idea of originality as it relates to art. 
people often speak of art that is like music and paintings and film that are unique as being absolutely original. In other words, you might watch something like Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and since there's so little which came before it that resembles it, walk away believing that the creators dreamed up the entire style and substance of it. And what so many people miss is the complex dance of how art and culture is constantly, sometimes intangibly, influencing that which comes after it. In his autobiography, John Cleese talks in great detail about The Goon Show. The Goon Show was a British radio comedy show that ran from 1951 to 1960. It starred people like Peter Sellers and in general had the same sort of fun, crazy atmosphere as what we associate with Monty Python. Hearing Cleese describe it, I conjured up an image of a perfect proto-Monty Python kind of show. He cites that show's lunacy, its irreverence, its offbeat sense of humor, and he asserts that its effect on Monty Python was more profound than any other show. So obviously, after reading that, I had to go and listen to The Goon Show myself. Bear in mind, I was expecting to hear basically Monty Python in radio format. But to my surprise, I found it honestly very dull. Not that it wasn't strictly speaking funny, but it was very slow and it felt antiquated. It felt like it was resting on touchstones that made no sense to me. But John Cleese had drawn a straight line from The Goon Show to Monty Python. He had described the former as having so many elements that I could only perceive in the latter. So how could the two, to my eye, appear so different when to him they were so similar? I'd actually experienced something similar to this a few years ago when I read Keith Richards' autobiography. The Rolling Stones guitarist talks in excruciating detail about the blues music that the band adored as they were growing up. And he insists over and over and over that all they did in their career was attempt to capture the same energy and raucousness and fun and spirit of those songs that they had grown up listening to. But similarly, when I went back and actually listened to those old blues artists he was talking about, I couldn't discern any of those traits, at least not the way Keith Richards described them, and certainly not the way the Rolling Stones sounded. The thing that's happening with Keith Richards, with John Cleese, with, I am convinced, a wide array of groundbreaking artists, is that their influences exhibit the strange power of subjectivity in art. Keith Richards listened to old blues records as a kid, and he perceived a certain energy, a certain feeling. He set out to capture that and ended up replicating not the original sound itself, but what the original sound felt like to him. That's an odd sentence, so it bears repeating. Great artists will, in the process of recreating something that mattered to them, end up recreating what the thing did to them rather than the thing itself. You see this phenomenon everywhere, by the way. Quentin Tarantino wears his influences on his sleeves, but the schlocky B-movies of the 70s and 80s don't have the same poetic resonance as his characters. We're not watching his recreation of those movies, but his perception of them, the depth and the intrigue and the thrills that he read into those movies that he so adored. And taking this all the way around to Monty Python, which is arguably one of the most important artistic or cultural touchstones in any medium in the last 50 years, 
I think we see both sides of this equation play out. I watch Monty Python and the Holy Grail now, and I struggle to connect it to the radio shows and comedy troops that directly inspired its creators. Holy Grail is a recreation not of those shows in and of themselves, but of the effect those shows had on the people who watched them. And this process repeats after Monty Python. There were plenty of people who actually imitated the sketch comedy group, who were in love with that style and simply redid the same content in the same style with the same sensibility. Sometimes those people were even moderately successful, but they were seldom if ever actually remembered. Instead, the great comedians that came after and explicitly cite Monty Python usually are people who seek to recreate the effect of the group, the sense of disorientation and surprise, of not knowing where this is going, of nonsensical plots that stay only as long as necessary to get a laugh. And I think the challenge for us, as artists or even as just people living our lives, is to recognize the way that meaningful things can and perhaps should influence us. We all know someone, or have been at some point someone, that attempted to live like another person by actually mimicking them to a large degree. I remember once in college, I was trying to write a short story for a class, and I decided to essentially copy one of my all-time favorite short stories, A Good Man is Hard to Find by Flannery O'Connor. I imagined that to be a good writer, I ought to take that story and that author and write something exactly as I thought she would. So I tried to replicate the, the circumstance and the situation and the characters and the style of her. In the end, I had a pretty boring piece of work that I think completely missed the target of what I was aiming for. Instead of painstakingly recreating O'Connor's characters, stories, and stylings, I needed to examine how those things made me respond. And I needed to aim for something that made that same response. The result is something which perhaps resembles what inspired it only a tiny bit, but despite being completely born out of your relationship with another artist, it becomes wholly original to you. Originality, I think, is not something to be desired or sought out. Like so much in spirituality, what meaningful things we might accomplish are done so by our willingness to be open and to be present and to be true to who we are and not by our effort to arrange our lives as a perfect recreation of something which came before. When you embrace that vulnerability of being yourself, not of trying to be someone who means a lot to you, I think you find that you have a wondrous aptitude for good and great things that are truer to you in a word that are truly original. Man, that was good. I like that a lot. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. It's hard to find an angle for this movie, but I, I like where we both went. Uh, I like that we went somewhere different, too. Often we converge, but it makes sense with a movie like this. There's so much to read into it. Like, you know, you can go any direction. I could have talked about uh, capitalism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, no, so. and, I, and I, I really like the idea of what you were saying about originality. And I mean, I, I really had like, two major thoughts you know one with my vocation and then one personally 
uh, if you don't mind me sharing before you ask any questions. Absolutely. Yeah, to be like, honest with you, actually, so, so to head you off a little bit, my main question was going to be, how do you see this play out specifically in your vocation? So for, for our listeners' sake, uh, Mike works as a pastor at a church. So something I'm very fascinated about, I, I've been around pastors a lot. I don't work in a church anymore, but I've been around and worked with pastors a lot. And my parents are both pastors. So I often see this same thing play out where often these people are inspired by people that they heard before, but seeing that inspiration in the way that sometimes there's a struggle of, do I just do the same thing as that person or do I recreate the effect it had on me? Obviously I I think the latter is more valuable, but Mike, I guess uh, that's sort of all I really wanted to know. That was my main question is, do you have that struggle in your own vocation and how have you maybe wrestled with that in the past? Yeah, no, I mean, definitely. I think I look back at, actually I had this, had it almost immediately. I look back to the, the first sermon I gave and you know, it's true with any creative endeavor you do going back and listening Mm -hmm. to the first attempt is painful and gross and you hate it. Um, But when I, when I reflected on it, even the week after I did it, you know, I, I was like, man, I'm up there giving an impersonation of the pastors and the, especially the teaching mm. pastors that I, I was so moved by when I came back to Christianity, whether that's Rob Bell or at that time, uh, the, the lead pastor of our church, who was a fantastic teaching pastor and was a mentor to me. Like I listened to that sermon. I'm like, I'm just trying to be Rob Bell, right? I am just trying to, mm create this you know ted talky kind of sermon vibe that is you know has intellectual commentary on first century judaism or whatever else and then also a powerful emotional punch that makes it very practical and grounded and it just didn't feel authentic to me it had parts that did but for the most part you're just like oh cool i'm doing what those people did worse and i remember even in the second message I gave a few months later, I just doubled down on doing like a creative performance piece that I was really interested in. And in over the years since, I mean, I think what the, what you described is exactly what took place. I stopped asking Mm -hmm. how would X person give this message? And I started being like, well, what inspired me about the messages when I first came back? It was right. the way that they spoke to my mind and my heart. It was the way that they made me feel like there was something deeper going on. It made me, it, I love the way that it made me take something that as a child felt lofty and detached from my reality and made it very grounded, right? And when I just was like, how does Mike Overstreet make people feel those things? How can I craft a creative project in a way that makes people ask questions like I loved asking questions when I was experiencing it myself it, it suddenly became so much better I mean so much better and yeah. and so much true to me like so much more enjoyable to me it wasn't like I'm just slaving away trying to recreate something <laughs> like ephemeral or whatever it's like oh this is what I want to say and this is how I want to say it and this is true to myself and this is it, yeah this is a process and a result that is more fulfilling. Um, yeah. But I also think, I mean, I think about that personally. I think that in my personal life, like, again, I, we're talking, this is like, this is the the fatherhood of Audi Overstreet podcast, but. Yeah, welcome. welcome. 
Yeah, but when I think about my my fatherhood, right? I think there is a impulse to be like, how can I be my dad to my daughter, right? Mm-hmm. And how can I mimic how he was a dad? And and you're gonna find really quick that it, it doesn't work. You're not your dad, right? And when you start asking like, oh, maybe it's not how can I be my dad who had a very different job and a very different life and a very different personality, but instead, how can I recreate the feeling of security I got from him or the feeling that he was always present, even even if he wasn't the, <laughs> I love my dad, but even when he wasn't the most emotional person, I always felt he was there for me. I always felt he mm-hmm. would drop anything to come take care of me. I always felt like if I had a problem, he would... He was a sure foundation I could go to. How can I make her feel that way while being myself? Like, how can I give her that sense of security and love um, and and that knowing that they're not alone and that they always have somewhere to go and a person to turn to? How can I do that in my own unique way, right? Yeah. And suddenly fatherhood becomes a more enjoyable task. It becomes a more... Um, Honestly, a, a task that makes you learn about yourself in ways that you wouldn't if you were just trying to be someone else. It makes you ask better questions. It makes you more present. It makes you more willing to try different things than maybe you experienced as a child. And and I think that's good. And I think that's fun. And I think that's going back to my essay. That's where meaning actually comes from. So, yeah, yeah I, I love I don't know. As I'm talking, I'm like, man, I love that. Not to blow smoke up your ass, but I loved that <laughs> monologue because I think it's spot on. Well, and you know, hearing you talk, I, I do feel the need almost to 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 point something out because if you're someone who's listening who has worked on something where you felt like you were just trying to recreate someone, I actually think that a lot of good creation starts there. So don't yeah. feel bad about that. No, and it's no, funny hearing no. you say about that. Hearing you talk about starting your sermons in in the context of just trying to be that same person. I I feel like I have the same experience. I guess I said I did with writing. Well, and, and if with, I can interject a little yeah, bit, yeah. it's also important to note that like in that second message, I tried something uniquely my own, but I still think a lot of that second message in the intellectual parts and the teaching parts was still very much mimicry. I mean, yeah. so it was, it was a much larger process as I found out how can I engage people's intellect in a way that's my own? Like you start yeah. by still mimicking, but engaging yourself in smaller ways that you feel comfortable or that you um, mm-hmm. feel equipped to do. And then, and then over time, I would say it was like well over a year long process before I got to a point where I was like, Oh, this is my voice. This is how yeah. I do it. Right. So I, I want to make it and sound like I turned a switch overnight. I think you're no, right. Like absolutely. That mimicry yeah, and, and- is where you start. Well, and it's very fascinating to me that those those skill sets bleed into each other, I think. Uh, I, there's actually a great history. I, I would struggle to name too many besides a few weird ones. But, but there's a great history with musicians of bands that began as cover acts and developed into original material. Uh, and it's, I think it's, it's sort of an example of what we're talking about, where you sort of fall into that loop of just recreation and it's actually is just a small step from there into well now i want to just re- i want to recreate the feeling without recreating the same thing in and of itself and how yeah. do i do that yeah uh, yeah so that is a that's a great place to start it's it's just about not finishing there cuz there yeah. are unfortunately quite a lot of people that get stuck in that of well if i just recreate this thing in and of itself 
that's going to do it. It's funny. This is something I think Hollywood has gotten very wrong in the past five or 10 years. There's been a wave of, of nostalgia for old stuff. We've seen mm. Jurassic Park remade, not remade, but we've seen sequels to Jurassic Park and we've seen sequels to Star Wars. Those are the two that came to mind. I think both of which failed spectacularly, in my opinion. They made tons of money. So, you know, what, who cares what we're saying? But but I think artistically were, were significant failures, largely because they did not try to recreate the emotion of their original property. Mm. They tried to recreate the entirety of their original yeah. property. Oh, my gosh, right? yes. They said, well, let me just... We're going back. Star Wars is maybe the better example. The J.J. Abrams It was just effect. crazy. The J. J. My boy J.J. just went in there and said, well, we're just basically remaking the same movie What again. if the Emperor came back with a bigger Death what if, Star? What if we had... Exactly. And, you know, it's funny. We talked last week about Ryan Johnson and the much maligned second of, of the... Welcome to the Star Wars sequels podcast. <laughs> and the much maligned uh, second sequel, Lost Jedi. And... I think I, I do have significant issues with that movie, but the best parts of it were the parts that were trying not to redo the same story as the originals, but to recreate the emotions and the sensation of the original. Mm. And that is key. And I think Ryan Johnson understands that. And frankly, I think JJ Abrams doesn't actually yeah. with Mr. Abrams, we can go back to super eight for an example of that super eight is basically meant to be a Spielberg era Amblin film, but all he does is recreate the same context and characters and situation. And to me, it falls flat. I mean, it's an okay movie, but it's certainly not ET, you know, it doesn't, it's misunderstanding how you recreate those emotions. Sure. Uh, Yeah. Do you know the gif of Woody Harrelson riping his, his tears with, cash yeah money i believe that's what jj abrams would do to us if he if he overheard this conversation uh you're not wrong just say oh that's that's really rough sitting over here in my mansion but but it is something i think is notable about current films Hey guys, thank you uh, for listening to this podcast as always. We we have each prepared a final question for each other, so it's not quite over. Before that, though, we did want to let you know the next episode, we're going to be tackling Interstellar. Oof. Interstellar the uh, is from our boy Christopher Nolan. It's a 2014 the, the science fiction film. Christopher Nolan. The, the genius Christopher Nolan. Uh I think we both have a lot to say on it. There's there's many things to like. There's many things to dislike. Have you uh, ever wondered what Armageddon would be like with philo- like half-hearted <laughs> philosophy mixed into it? Because that's essentially Interstellar. I can't wait. I'm so excited. That was a little mean. I shouldn't have said that about Interstellar. I'm it's, sorry. I mean, it's Nolan. a little mean. We're sorry. Again, uh, wiping the tears with the money. Okay. Uh, final question. I'll go first. Mike. You have been to a monastery. Mm. If you, and you've told me about it, and apparently it's, it's a very enriching time. Powerful. If you, yeah. If you went to that monastery and during one of those morning uh, uh, services, they started to punctuate their chants by hitting themselves in the face with boards, <laughs> would you feel pressured to join in? Well, first of all, how do you know that they don't do that? 
I get you know what I don't. So I, I'm prepared for you to tell me that uh, so, this is why you this is what you do every time. This is a great question because the answer Thank is you. yes, and so would everyone else. <laughs> the thing that people sure. don't understand about going to a monastery, especially the, like the one I went to, which is it's silent. You know, there was a I think you go to two classes or we did. We signed up for two classes on like meditation, centering prayer. Mm -hmm. And in that, the teachers speak to you. Right. And you actually get to know them. Yeah. Beyond that, no one talks. None of them talk. And and that they, includes and, and just to clarify for people listening, that includes meals. Yep. That includes so everything is done in silence, yeah. Yes. And then it's like required dead silence for the whole grounds at like 7.30 until you get up at, I want to say you get up at four for the first like mass. And and when I say mass, I don't mean like you would normally think about it. It's a lot more like chanting and prayer and it's a very mystical experience. And right. And because of that, and because of the fact that I'm not Catholic and I don't know most of the stuff, <laughs> Everything about it feels alien. Like you get up at four, right. you go to this thing where it's all candle lit and they just like read Psalms and chant them back and forth and you can take part in it and then it's kneeling and then it's praying and then they turn off all the lights and you meditate for like 30 minutes and, and all this stuff. You go along with everything they do because <laughs> you feel like a fish out of water. Like they could do yeah. anything and you'd be like, I, I guess this is just what I'm doing today. I guess right? this is what we're doing today. Yeah. Because you yeah. don't have a, you don't have a clue. You don't know what you're doing. <laughs> so yes, if they just were like, and now we beat ourselves in the face of the book. I'm like, okay. I mean, the monk okay, is best. Yeah. It, it ain't Here my house. Go. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I, I've been kneeling and standing, in, <laughs> praying. When in I Rome, know. I guess, you know. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Beautiful. Uh, so yeah, that's a good question. The answer is definitely. Thank you. What, <laughs> makes me want to go to a monastery weirdly yeah like even yeah. hearing that i'm just like that sounds great i could do yeah. that yeah i mean i don't like talking to people it's so deeply designed for you to like fall into a way of life different than your own so it's like yeah you don't really feel like you have the right to say yes and no to various <laughs> things but oh, oh, okay john this is another personal one sure. and i want you to dig deep okay how mm, how do i say this let me just, I'll leave it up to you to decide what word you want to use to describe how you'd feel. How okay. would you feel if you were the one who wandered into the female spanking castle? I was afraid you were going to say that. I think if nothing else, I, I appreciate that he's still going for the grail for most of the time in there. Right. <laughs> That he's that he's so it's also an early example of gaslighting, which I think is really great. <laughs> so I think in a sense, I don't think it matters how I'd feel because those women did not seem to care that they were uh, making him go a little bit crazy. By the end, he didn't seem to care either. Uh, to be honest with you, like like real real talk, we're digging deep. OK. Absolutely terrified yeah for yeah. a couple reasons one already not the most comfortable talking to a woman i'll say it I'll, we're being honest here second little bit of a stepford wives vibe going on sure like that's just objectively in the context of the movie everything's so silly that you're there uh it is it is very creepy though for a lot of reasons so uh yeah i'd be terrified i guess would, would be my my prevailing emotion 
and you're and he's being gaslit too it's like a it's a horror story uh <laughs> if you think about it so th- that's up. probably how i feel follow up on us on yes. the spectrum of human connection where does spanking land in your affinity for human okay touch? so uh thank you guys for listening to to this film could be your life i don't have any further comments on, on that <laughs> note uh i i don't have a sec you, you've left me with nothing i'm just i'm just standing out here in the void talking into the stupid microphone and hey. i got nothing to say now hey confrontation with the absurd you're on your way to real meaning <sighs> We'll see you next time, guys. Thank you guys uh, for is... listening. I'm Jonathan Devine, joined by Mike Overstreet, unfortunately. Love you, uh, buddy. We'll see you guys next episode. I honestly can't believe you did that to me. Oh, my God. <laughs> what, are, what are we doing? What that are we doing funny. here? If this was a popularity contest, I think citing your daughter is cheating. It's called cheap wins. I just have my cat. <laughs> well, the cat probably is intrusive sometimes. It, she can be. I connect with that.